So today, things are going to look a little bit different. Um, for a long time now, ever since I was brought on as pastor, actually, I've been saying, I don't think that there should just be sermons on Sunday morning. I think people learn in different ways, which is why we sometimes have something that are a bit more creative. Uh, we celebrate the way that we are created uniquely and differently, and different people learn in different ways. Uh, but then COVID happened, and then you just had to listen to me for like two years straight and nothing else on Sunday mornings, which I don't think is always the most or most effective way that people learn. So I thought, you know what, it'd be great to have a conversation on a Sunday morning. That's a kind of fun thing to do. Uh, and seeing as we're beginning this series on Exodus, I thought, well, let's ask my friend Danielle uh, if she wants to have a conversation about Exodus. She literally wrote a book about Exodus, so it seems like an appropriate thing. Uh, usually, Danielle, the, really the place you tend to preach at in Toronto is the People's Church. Uh, and I did promise there will be at least as many people uh, <laughs> here as there are at the People's Church. So, <laughs> may not have delivered on that promise. Um, I don't know. It's really weird introducing you because you're just a bud, so it's kind of weird and awkward. But you're also a friend who does some really wonderful and incredible and inspirational things for the kingdom. So it's difficult to know what to do with that. Uh, but I was thinking about this, and I looked my my copy of your book on Exodus, and this was when we were first hanging out, and I asked you to sign it. And she signed it with a quote. And this is actually a quote that we'd been in a prayer meeting earlier in the week, and we were talking about Romans 8, I think. And then she was speaking at a conference that I was also at later in that week. And then she just straight up plagiarized what I'd said. <laughs> and I said to her, I'm like, did you just steal that from me? She said, oh, absolutely. That's how this works. And they had begun a beautiful relationship of us plagiarizing from one another uh, and occasionally working together. <laughs> so, so come up and hang out and we'll talk about Exodus. I'm sometimes a guest host on Danielle's podcast, and we thought what would be fun if doing like a live podcast, which implies that our podcasts are usually super produced or something, which is not the case. I think you've moved from guest host to co-host. Oh, okay, there we go. That's a, <laughs> thank you, there we go. Promotion Daniel right Strickland here. and James Scholl. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's great to be with you guys. It's really, I've heard a lot about you. Uh, James talks a lot about you. I don't mean that. I mean, like, in a positive way. In a way. good way, though, right? In a beautiful like, way. <laughs> and uh, love being here. It's really fun. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So I figured we'd, we weren't quite sure what to go with. Um, so we figured we'd have our scripture today from Hebrews 3. And uh, the subtitle of this in our Bibles is Jesus Greater Than Moses, which is good. Like that's <laughs> We have just followed a, uh, we've done a sort of four-month series on who was this man asking who Jesus is and who does Jesus spend time with. Uh, so this feels like a nice link going from Jesus into Moses, but kind of illuminating some of what Moses had going on. So I'll talk about that and then we'll have a chat about Exodus and we'll see how it goes. Uh, therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of the house is greater, has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying what would be said in the future. But Christ is, Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house. 
if we hold on to our courage and the hope which we boast. So as the Holy Spirit said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That's why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts have gone astray and they don't have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence which we had at first, as has just as been. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt, with whom he was angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see if we are not able to enter because of their unbelief. All right, Daniel. What what do you like about that verse? Then <laughs> you're the one that asked for it. <laughs> um, I think there's something. The connection between Jesus and Moses, I think, is really fascinating. So I don't. Are there any Marvel fans in the house? I have three uh, sons, and um, so I've, I'm very astute in the Marvel universe as a result. And one of the things I love about the Marvel universe is the way that there are all these Easter eggs like thrown throughout all the, so there are all these like little things that happen in one movie that's connected to another movie that's connected to another movie. And I was like, this is the perfect picture of the scriptures <laughs> in so many ways. It's like, there's all these things happening in the scriptures that are Easter eggs of other things happening in the scriptures. And uh, one of the things I love, like in the, the burning bush account where God uh, comes to and finds Moses is the, the theophany there, which is like just that, um, fancy a word of saying it's a God, it's a Jesus sighting in the Old Testament. This burning bush where there's a voice speaking out of that bush, which we can recognize that voice as the voice of Jesus based on what that voice says <laughs> and who that voice, even the I am, which is later Jesus is going to echo years and years later. So there is this relationship and then that relationship that Moses even has with, I mean, he wouldn't have the word Jesus to use, but with God and the glory of God, which is found in the face of Christ. So we know like there's all these sort of like Jesus sightings all throughout the Exodus story, which I think are just kind of cool. And I love that later, later on in the New Testament, you see, you know, Jesus is, and you know, the, the writer of Hebrews is saying like this connection between Moses and Jesus, <laughs> all of those thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, like predating the physical body of Jesus is the point. I mean, it's just the point it's, and it's how, uh, Moses is different. It's how Moses does something different than what the normal trajectory would be. It's how the freedom gets dislodged. And the missing of that, the disconnection with people in Jesus is how um, people don't. People end up doing the same old, same old and, and falling into the same pattern. So even the word, the idea of the people of God being the ones who harden their heart. Of course, if you're familiar with the Exodus story, when I say harden your heart, who do you think of? 
Pharaoh. You think of Pharaoh. He's the bad guy in the story, right? You don't think we always like Pharaoh's the bad guys and the Israelites are the good guys and God liberates Israelites. And then thousands of years later, Hebrews is saying, actually, you harden your heart. And you're like, what? And then it just turns out that like every single human being has the capacity to be like Pharaoh. And uh, we don't want that to be the story, but that is the story. That is the scriptural stories. It's not like God doesn't like the Egyptians and he loves the Israelites. That's the story we make it into. The real story is that God wants people to be free. And that the only way that that freedom actually happens is in that connection with, to hear the voice of, to have an encounter with, to desire time with God. And that voice of Jesus, even all those years ago, I mean, it's mind-blowing. So cool. It's like way better than Marvel. (laughs) If you're going to take anything from this morning, it's like we actually have a better story, right? It's way better than Marvel. (laughs) I would actually say all the stories are this story, right? I mean, we know this, right? Like all story arcs are this story. The Exodus story is like the meta-narrative story of deliverance and freedom and captivity and enslavement and oppression and deliverance like all it's all it is the story of the scriptures that theme of god as rescuer just comes up over and over and over and over and over mm-hmm. and i think we yeah sometimes we lose that i was thinking about this today and even the kind of parts where we kind of look at the hearts been hardened and that's and we struggle with that. And I wonder if part of that is because sometimes in churches we've been kind of taught to really look at an individual verse instead of looking at the whole story. Mm-hmm. And you know, what's the story that's happening here? Well, the story is that God hears the cry of the oppressed and sets them free. Mm-hmm. And we hear this over and over and over again, that that is there's kind of God's ear is tuned to the oppressed and his heart is tuned to liberate. Yeah, um, literally, he describes himself as the God who hears the cry. Yeah. That's what he said. I am the God who hears the cry. I mean, that's pretty powerful if you know anyone who is crying out for mercy. If you know anyone, or even in your own prayer time, when you're crying out for deliverance or crying out for justice or crying out for healing, you are crying to the God who hears the cry. Uh, and he's not hearing the declaration of Pharaoh. It's not... He's not that God who hears like the, whoa, I guess we can't do anything. He is the God who is moved by and responds to the cry of the oppressed. That's the kind of God he is. It's self, self-proclaimed. self <laughs> This is who I am. I was, yeah, even sort of one of the big themes in Exodus, we talked about this a bit last week. So uh, the word Exodus means the road out in Greek or the way out. Mm-hmm. Um in Hebrew, the word, the name is literally called like the names or these are the names. That's the name of the book is these are the names because so much of it is about the names of God's people, but also the names given to God. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think one of the interesting things, and I know this is being a big part of your year, the first person to name God and maybe the last, I think, is Hagar. Uh-huh. Like, so even that Hagar, for those of you who don't know, is a, a slave who is treated awfully by her owners who by the way, are kind of the heroes, but obviously not, because God clearly recognizes the awful ways mm-hmm. that they treat their slave. Right. And she says, you are the God who sees me. Uh, no one else gets to name God, only the slave woman. So even from the start, we have this narrative of a God who is sinned by the people that might not we won't think to, and here's the people that maybe we're, our ears aren't tuned to. 
Yeah. And I wonder too, if, if that also is a conversation about intimacy, like that moment with Hagar and God finding Hagar despairing and sort of basically like, I'm going to die here. And so is my future. And, um, and that God comes and says, no, no, I'm right here. Like I see you and I see the sun inside of you. Like I see your future. And, um, there's an intimacy to the, I've seen the God who sees me. It's not like Hagar's bragging about her ability to find God. She had given up and God finds her, you know, which is actually a very similar story to Moses. Moses had given up and God finds him. So there is this, you know, the nature, the character of the God who takes the initiative, the God who goes and sees, the God who goes and finds, the God who finds those people who are crying, who are desperate, who are alone and says, no, no, I'm right here and I see you. And there's an intimacy to that. Um, that I think is different from, so she goes running back, which is also interesting. She goes running back to the people who abused her, which, you know, if you're, uh, anywhere acquainted with abuse would be the opposite direction. I would tell anyone to go, uh, don't go there. Don't go there. But I think in the larger picture of what God's trying to do is he's trying to say, you cannot write this out of your story. Because of this Hebrews passage of like, because the hardness of heart is not some other person's problem. It's our problem. And in inside this like highly dysfunctional, to be fair, from the beginning, like highly dysfunctional and a family unit that lived at a time that maybe we can't even fully fathom. So we keep translating family, you know, Abraham's family, like our families. And it's not, it's a tr- more like a tribal king. So this like, you know, tribal king, dysfunctional family trying to find their way uh, to understand what God is like. God sends Hagar back to say God is like this. God's like this. And uh, you cannot write this out of the story because this is who God is. And then God keeps showing up like that progressively all through the scriptures. I am still this way. So now we're in Exodus and there's another dysfunctional, you know, crazy, although really important to remember that the origin story of Exodus is not Exodus, it's Genesis. When Joseph goes, is sold by, into slavery by who? His family. His family. Family, whatever right? that means. So again, this like this construct that we have of like us versus them and like bad guys versus good guys. And like, we keep trying to put that framework on the story and God literally messes it up the whole way through. He's like, that's not actually it. It's just people who are in relationship with me and people who are not. And if you're in relationship with me, it doesn't matter what your title is or what you say you are or what you pretend to be. You are hard of heart. You're lost. You can't enter my rest. You won't experience the fullness. You won't see people delivered. There will be no transformation. You'll do the same old, same old, same old till you're done to the ground. But if you are in relationship with me, if you will listen to me, if you will be interrupted by me, if you will encounter my voice, you can actually change the trajectory of not only your life, but of the lives of people around you. Yeah, I had a fantastic thought and then I got like enraptured by what you were saying. I'm like, yeah, you're right. I think um Joseph is sold into slavery. Yeah. Instead of being embittered against the Egyptians, he blesses them again. This is a hard posture. He blesses the people where what what are we supposed to do as Christians? Right? As Jesus follows, we're supposed to bless people. We're supposed to do what we can to see people, and he saved Egypt from a famine. Um, and then Egypt saved Israel from a famine. 
you remember that mutual blessing that happened? We bless, we freely receive, and we freely give. And the Pharaoh that welcomed the Israelites into Egypt gave them the very best land for shepherding in all of uh, Egypt because they were shepherds. And then, um, and, and they blessed Israel. So there's this like literal story of mutual blessing in the text before the oppression begins. So that's also interesting. There's this like reciprocal mutuality that happens between the giving and the receiving of blessing in the story. And then something stops it. And we're not entirely sure because when Exodus 1 starts, it says 300 years later. <laughs> so we're like, okay, that's 300 years later in the story. That's a bit of a blip and a bit of a jump. But there's a couple things we know. The one thing that we know is that the Israelites are no longer shepherds. Which is weird because they still have the best land in Egypt for shepherding. What we know when we pick up the story in Exodus is that the, the Israelites are now bricklayers. And the question, you know, unanswered in the text is why? Now, I first started getting really interested in the book of Exodus when I was, I was uh, doing lots of stuff on uh, anti-human trafficking and slavery. And I was realizing like, ooh, there's like a text that could help <laughs> me understand. Does the Bible speak to slavery at all? Right. And deliverance and like what this freedom journey is like and stuff like that. So that's where, and I was co-presenting at a conference with this guy, Claudio Oliver, who's from Brazil. He's an incredible social justice guy. And I was presenting sort of like the Israelites as slaves, you know, pretty, pretty well. And at the end of the presentation, he took me aside and he's like, Danielle, like, can you walk me through when you think of the Israelites as slaves? What do you think of? What do you think of when you think of the Israelites as slaves? Just the Prince of Egypt. Like, that's all I can think of is that movie. Yeah. Where, <laughs> where they're in, like, where they're chained and yeah. they're like, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. And he says, do you, what? So in that picture of slaves, he said, let's just rethink the Exodus text. So he says, the Israelites own their own homes. They have the best land in all of Egypt for uh, shepherding. The Israelites have their own livestock. Do you remember? They, they, that survived even the plague. Uh, the Israelites were so threatening as a people that the king was afraid of them. So what kind of slaves is that? And actually, he said to me, read Exodus again, because the only person that calls the Israelites slaves is God. And I was like, what? Because in my mind, I think I had the transatlantic slave, which is its own like evil incarnate, right? Like that's its own demonic story of oppression. And, and it relates, you know, there's all kinds of principles that relate, but they're like, the, the, that is not what's happening here. There is an assimilation to a dominant culture uh, that is about empire that's about building. I mean, literally, people still fly all over the world to go to Egypt to look at what they built with bricks. Okay? They were brick laying. If you wanted to be anybody, if you wanted to ascend, if you wanted to get rich, if you wanted to be thought of in any way as successful, if you wanted to be whatever, fill in the blank, you were a bricklayer. That's what you did. You got into that industry. You did that work because this is the work that will actually matter. So that we pick up the story and they're bricklayers. And with the bricklaying comes oppression, of course. Because when you buy into and you become oppressed by, you'll become oppressed by the thing that you're enslaved by. Any addicts in the house? Right? So you enter into addiction thinking like, oh, this is freedom. 
this is awesome. Like I can escape. I can do what I want. I can, whatever it is. And then that very thing that you thought was freedom is the very thing that will oppress you. And I think there's a similar principle happening at the very start of the Exodus story where it's like, we all left that shepherding business behind. Now there's a little hint in the text. There's a new Pharaoh. The new Pharaoh is not a fan of shepherds because the old Pharaoh was from a shepherding line. So he's trying to differentiate himself from the old Pharaoh line. So he's trying to like, and he's into bricks, evidently. But somewhere in this new Pharaoh, and I don't know, I have this hunch, like I have this kind of hunch that little uh, Jewish kids or Israelite kids were going to school smelling like sheep. You know, I have this hunch in the, you know, their colleagues were like, ugh, you smell bad, man. Are you a shepherd? You know, and just this idea of the cultural shift from like shepherds are good. We value shepherding. This is important. You have the best land. Like we esteem you as shepherds. There was like a disfavor that happened. And then when the disfavored happened, those people started to go, maybe we shouldn't be that. Maybe it's wrong to be that. Maybe whatever. And they began to actually assimilate in the dominant culture that they were in, which is an oppressive culture, which leads us back to Moses. Everybody hang with me. I used to think that, okay, so Moses gets uh, saved, rescued as a baby, right? Delivered, floats in the basket. My uh, youngest son is Moses, so I'm really committed to the story. Um, <laughs> and I used to teach him as a little kid, like, when you get to Pharaoh, what are you going to say? And Moses would be like, let my people go. And I'd be like, yes. Anyway. <laughs> but anyway, he gets into the palace. He's taken into the, like, the height of power. He's raised in Pharaoh's um, place, which, of course, in the arc of a hero trajectory story, that's where we believe all the change will happen, right? We still believe this. Like, if only we could get, and I mean, there might be in the psyche of all the Israelites who are like, now we're bricklayers. Now we're like getting somewhere. Like now someone will take us seriously. And then Moses gets to the top of the food chain and there realizes if he uses those techniques, if he is a little Pharaoh, but in a good way, the results are the same. The results are the same. There is no way to be Pharaoh in a good way. There's no way. And so he, he uh, fails, which in the story arc is just such a drag because you're just like, that can't be right. Like, why would God deliver him like that and then send him to the palace and raise him in the palace only for him to, to fail and, and, and be a washed up? Like, why would that happen? And then we pick up the story. 40 years, Moses is in the wilderness. And what did he become? A shepherd. <gasps> what? <laughs> He becomes a what? A shepherd. And while he's shepherding, God appears to him and says, oh, hey. Now, I believe for my whole life, I think I believe that God used Moses in spite of him being a shepherd. Because I always viewed the story as the shepherd being the backup plan. Now, when I read that story again with all those hints in the text, I go, God's just like, how long is it going to take for this guy to find himself, to find his own identity? Because God does not want to use somebody else, and God will never use Pharaoh. Not ever, even if Pharaoh looks like the people of God. God will never use Pharaoh, but God will use you for who you are. And in that place where Moses has that encounter with God, he's discovering who God is, but he also has now discovered who he is. And that's why there's something profound when God says, I need you to go confront Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's like, that can't be right. 
And he sends Moses to confront Pharaoh as a shepherd, which is his origin identity in the beginning. This is who he's with. This is who he is. And there is so much power in finding out not only who God is, but also who you are. And knowing that God does not want to use you as somebody else. He wants to use you as you in such a beautiful way. He wants to animate you and empower you and use the very gifts and skills and callings that he's put in you from the beginning. No matter who thinks what about it. Uh, This is what God wants. So let's let's riff on that a little. I'm interested by it because I think uh, we use language like new creation and born again. And the old is gone, the new has come. And so as a result, we... And it throw the baby out with the bathwater, which is a bit on the nose for Moses, I guess. Um, but <laughs> out with the Nile water. There we go. Um, but actually, as you say, like, it's, and there's lots of things that we need to shed. And I think that's good. But I think there's also something about, like, rescuing that creation that we always were. It, we talk about this a lot. I know that you know, the first thing that God calls very good is humanity. Like, it is human humanity's place within creation and god says this is very good and so there's something about just reclaiming that as well um so it's a new creation but it's also just back to who you're always supposed to be and were created to be and who god sees you as from the beginning right yeah and it's like it's like it's its own individual deliverance story so we are delivered from those things that we thought uh were who we are so in many ways, the new creation, the recreation of God is the unraveling of all of those things. That So like if you think about Moses' story, it would be pretty similar maybe to yours, where you are, you know, literally in Hebrews later on when it says in the list of hall of faith. So in all those like who's the greatest <laughs> list in Hebrews, it lists people's names. And one of the people listed are Moses' parents. Which I think are really interesting because Moses' parents are not factored in the story apart from we're going to like float this baby down the Nile. And the reason Hebrews lists them as part of the faithful is that they saw that Moses was no ordinary child. That's how the text puts it. So Moses' parents who saw that Moses was no ordinary child. Anybody ever see a baby being born? Right. And anybody here, when you've seen a baby, or even if you just met a newborn child, anybody here ever just go, <laughs> just a, just an ordinary baby. I, f- I feel like I can't put my hand on this. It's going to get me in a lot of trouble. <laughs> I just, like, there is literally, I've had three children and been in neighborhoods where, like, children aren't. And it's like, have, like, I call, uh, babies are like a fireplace. If I were to bring a newborn child in here and just put it right here, we would all just be like sitting around. We wouldn't take our eyes off the baby. We'd just all be looking at the baby. We'd all be fussing with the baby. We'd all be comp. And, and why? What is it about? Like, there are no, there's no such thing as an ordinary child. There's no such thing as an ordinary child. When you see that baby, you're just like, that's extraordinary. Whatever that, that beauty, that wonder, that innocence, that goodness, that very good, good, good. In Hebrew, it's good, good, right? Good, good. Emphasize twice. Good, good. That baby's good, good. I can see it right now. You see that newborn, and you're just like, what? Even Wonder Woman, if we're back to uh, the universe of like superheroes, right? She's taken by children, right? Like she, even in all of her glories, like, look at that little baby. There's something uh, good, good about a little ordinary child, because there's no ordinary children. That's that's the point. And in Moses's parents, 
we're clued in enough to go, there is no such thing as an ordinary child. And if we were, if we were clued in like that, even when we looked in the mirror, no such thing as an ordinary child. There is a wonderfully, fearfully created children. There is extraordinary, gifted, loving, unique children. There are, you know, there is no such thing as an ordinary child. And what, you know, like what Moses went through in trying to become something different or trying to achieve or trying to, uh, well, just trying and trying on oppression for size and trying on position and trying to like disguise his ordinary childness or his extraordinary childness is where the oppression lives. And then he rediscovers it again. And I would say that salvation itself is a rediscovering of our extraordinariness right? Is a losing off. And that sin is this deception, this disease that comes in and tries to distort this beautiful origin story. And the new creation is us being born again into who it is we were always created to be. I'll say last week, so uh, I was, yeah, preaching. This is the first of the series and uh, Caitlin and I like to kind of debrief on how things go. And uh, we also dedicated baby Lucy last week, which was wonderful. And uh, Kane just said, like, I think your message was good, but I was just looking at Lucy the whole time. <laughs> I was like, thanks. <laughs> I, one thing that got cut from that sermon, which I'm really pleased about now, is again, this narrative that I think we often hear is that, and Moses was taken into the seat of power so he could get like the skills and the, all the, like, what he needed to be the leader he was. It's like, well, if that were the case, then why is this then 40 years of him, like, not using it? And also the fact that his, what is it that he learns from that? How is it he tries to fix things? The first thing he tries to fix is, well, I'll murder someone. That'll, that's what I've learned. And uh, Ashley's going to preach on this next week. But yeah, hopefully learning what he learned from Pharaoh is like, well, if something's prob- a problem or wrong, then we murder the problem and then the problem goes away. <laughs> well, and then this is, so I think this comes to how does God deliver? How does God bring freedom? How, in what way does God deliver? And because the ways of God are in keeping with who God is. So the, and that's what I mean by like, I want my people free and I'm going to murder someone to do it. Doesn't lead to freedom for anybody. It leads to slavery because that's what oppression is. And so when God speaks to Moses from the bush, this is him trying to help Moses learn or discover that God is not like Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't hear the cry. Pharaoh's literally so removed from the suffering and so attuned to suffering being part of his plan that he is unmoved by. And then that's going to be demonstrated later. He's literally unmoved by pain and suffering. Uh, God is moved by it. God hears it. God responds to it. Um, the, the, the way even uh, what attracted Moses to the burning bush, do you remember? It wasn't the fire. It, it wasn't that the bush was on fire. That's not what, that, that happens in deserts, apparently, spontaneous combustion. That's like a thing. It happens all the time. That's not what Moses went to see. Do you remember what Moses, why he went over to see the bush? It was on fire, but it was not being destroyed. What? He literally says, Moses literally says, what is that? That's what he said. What is that? Because he's seen all of the other kinds of power. He's seen a power that destroys, that has to destroy in order to keep its own power. That's that 
that oppression, that's that empire, that's that Pharaoh spirit. It's like the only way Pharaoh is in charge is if he consumes the people, the things, the land. I mean, think about even our colonial history. It's the only way that we work is by consumption. We have got to consume. We have to keep consuming. Not only do we have to first take and then consume the people, we have to keep consuming. So this brings us to our oppressive world we're in today. And this is Pharaoh's way. That's what Pharaoh does. That's, that's that power has to take. And it has to consume its source in order to keep the power going. God doesn't. I Literally, God doesn't. And Moses is like, what is that? And I think today we actually have to go, what is that? And what God, how God describes that, this is absolutely cool, is he goes, oh yeah, this is holy. Holy, by definition, means we don't know what this is. <laughs> we have no category for this. Like We don't even know what to call it. So we're going to call it other than anything else we know, and that's called holy. That's literally what holy means. He says, this is holy ground. And by holy ground, he doesn't mean some like reverence to the church or something. He just means like, this is something that you don't even understand. You can hardly comprehend it, but you can be in the presence of it. And in the presence of it, you can learn the ways of God. And the ways of God are not like the ways of this world. And our fight is not against human beings. And we will not go in such a way that we will consume because I don't need it. God's power does not need you to power it. God is all sufficient. God is all sufficient. Does not need to light you up. Does not require you to be burned or you to be destroyed. And, uh, you know, in one way, I had this revelation a couple of weeks ago where I was like, the only, the only force that possesses people in the New Testament is who? It's demonic. It's demonic. Jesus, literally every single time he encounters somebody, even people with obvious problems, like blind guys who are crying out all day, you know, please have son of David, have mercy on me, calls the blind guy to him. And what does Jesus do? He asks the blind guy what he would like him to do. What? He asked, what would you like me to do for you? Like, what is Jesus doing? Like, does he not know he's blind? Does he not know that he's been crying out? Does he not know? But there's something else Jesus is trying to do. He is not trying to control him. He's trying to free him. He's not trying to take from him to demonstrate his power to everybody so everybody else will know that Jesus is the all great powerful. He's not insecure. He doesn't need it. He is all powerful. He doesn't need to say that over and over again. He doesn't need to control that over and over again. He doesn't need to define the optics. He is that. What he's trying to do is he's trying to give power back, power away, agency too. He's trying to say good, good over this man's life who has been told his whole life that he's living in a deficit. He's trying to say, no, you're not. He's been told his whole life you have no choices. Jesus is like, turns out you do have a choice, even in your own healing. I've been saying recently when people say, Jesus, take the wheel, I feel like Jesus is in the passenger seat going, I'm not driving. <laughs> but if I were you, I'd turn right. <laughs> right? Less a takeover, more a partnership and a decision to say, and this is the same with Moses. Like he doesn't need Moses to do his work. God could do whatever he wants to do. God chooses Moses and chooses to partner with Moses to demonstrate what serving, walking with, being intimate with this God will do, what it will liberate, what and how different God is 
than, than anything we could even conceive of our own versions of power. Yeah, we, I, we meditated a little bit last week on this idea that, that God has no needs. So we can rely on God to not act selfishly or consume, because what could God consume as a God who doesn't need anything? And so every action becomes an expression of love, because that's who God is. As God is love and God who doesn't need anything. Every action becomes one of love. And I think that's, and that becomes partnering. I have a, a Does friend- love? Does love not have needs? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I get what you mean. Like, God has no need, like Pharaoh has a need. Yeah. Like, in this sort of, like, I've got to prove something or demonstrate something or use you to get something. But I wonder if one of the essences of love is to be needy. In that, yeah. Love needs love. Mm. I mean, I think he, I think God delights in love. I need another coffee before we go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that can be in the sequel. I, a friend of, a friend of mine who is a pastor and a a brilliant pastor and a wonderful man, uh, and also happens to be blind, like jokes about, he just can't go to charismatic churches because everyone is like rushing towards him and they can, it's, it's the opposite, right? Whereas you say, like, Like we want to heal you. He's we like, need I'm you good. to be. Yeah. We need you to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I'm like, fine. No, I'm good. Like yes. I, I'm absolutely at peace with the way that God has made me and yes. continues to reveal Himself to me through like who I am. Yeah. But you can't deal with that. And again, the difference between how like Jesus, who again has all power and authority mm. in heaven and earth, still goes. What would you like? Right. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, or? it's beautiful. <laughs> and counter to Pharaoh. Yeah. And also counter to us when we become like Pharaoh. Yeah. And that um, one of the, in the in the book, there's a chapter called... Um, Is it We're All Pharaohs or something? There's a Pharaoh in all of us. Yeah, yeah. That's right. And just that capacity that we have to harden our hearts when what God's asking us to do is costly. So Pharaoh could have let the people go. There's no question about it. It just would have cost him. I think in that question, so we talked last week about... Uh, scarcity and abundance, and ultimately the scarcity that kind of drives Pharaoh and the abundance that we see yeah. in God. Yeah. Um, one of the I love one of the kind of quick questions you pose in that group is like, and one of the things we see later later in the Exodus story is when people gather up stuff they don't need, it rots. Right. Like God is like, no, you need to trust that I will give you enough, and if you gather up more, it will rot and it'll be awful. And like, how would we act if that were the case with our possessions or our money? Like, if you have more than you need, it's just gone. How would that change our behavior? I, I don't know. It's a fascinating. That was literally thing. John Wesley, right? John was Wesley, okay. like, he felt like it was a sin if he had money in his bank account. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he was like a multimillionaire just with sales of his books and stuff. But every, literally every day, he would just give it away every day. And uh, his family wasn't super happy when he died, but <laughs> he was. <laughs> and the people that he blessed along the way were, yeah, yeah. it's radical. Yeah. Any. I'm having a lot of fun, but uh, we've gone longer than we usually do. Uh, any any closing thoughts from you, Danielle? Things from the book, things from the text, things that excite you, things that you want us to really, I mean, there's so much to take away. But Yeah, I'm hoping like where I'm hanging out these days is um, Acts 1-8 and how that relates to the burning bush, Exodus 3. And just this, the disciples who are confused and afraid 
and like literally uh, really confused about how this kingdom's coming because they have a whole view still. And after the resurrection, they're even still excited about like this overthrow. (laughs) And Jesus is like, oh, guys, you still don't get it. But if you'll wait for me, you'll receive power and you'll be my witnesses. Power, uh, dunamis in Greek. I think the image for me and literally what happens when the disciples wait in the story is that tongues of fire rest on them. If you want to think back to Exodus 3 with fire coming on you, the presence of God coming on you, but not destroying you or consuming you, actually lighting you up. And, um, and you'll be my witnesses. And that word witnesses actually is martyr. You'll be able to know how to lay down your life in such a way that people will go, what is that? And for me, um, I guess that's just really where I'm at is I want to be that type of person that waits for God, that has that intimate relationship with Jesus where I refuse to harden my heart. And out of that relationship with Jesus comes power. And not a burn you up power, but like an animate you power, dynamic, sustainable energy that will allow me then to lay down my life, to live and serve and lead differently. So people could go, holy. And I think... I mean, I think that's, this is my prayer, that that's what God's inviting us to do still. And, and whether that you're leading at work, whether you're leading at home, whether you're leading in the community, whether you're serving. I mean, I've, I've served marginalized communities my whole life and I've seen and I've participated in ways that have been Pharaoh-like in that. And I've also participated in ways that have been Jesus-like. And the difference is astounding. We can, in every sphere of our life, whatever it is that we're doing, we can walk in the power of God to be witnesses. And maybe there's never been a better time to do it. I think the world needs to see the church wielding power in a way that is very different to the way that it has been wielding power, right? Yeah. Amen. Wonderful. Uh, I wonder if you could lead us in a posture prayer to close. We do posture prayers from time to time, but I'm not as good at it as you are. So (laughs) maybe uh, if you'd like to lead us in one of those, that would be wonderful. Is that okay? Yeah. This is one of the ways I hope that in my own life that I try to keep uh, in touch with who God is and lead like him. So if you don't mind, if you want to participate, why don't we stand up, use our bodies in case we forgot we had them. And uh, I usually do this, uh, just a a prayer. It's called a posture prayer, and it has a confession, and then it has a declaration. And so if you're comfortable and you want to do this with me, you're more than welcome. So I hold my fists up like this, and I make this confession. If you want to repeat after me, you're welcome. I confess my natural human posture is to fight for myself, to control, to defend to try to make something happen. But I choose, as a follower of Jesus, a posture of surrender. I hold up my hands and give over my life to the care and lordship of Jesus. You can have all there is of me today. And then I... um, hold my hands out in front of me in fists like this, and I make this confession. I confess 
My natural human posture is to take, it's to hold, it's to hang on, it's to keep. But I choose, as a follower of Jesus, to open my hands in a posture of generosity. Freely I receive. And then just take a couple minutes right now, just even a minute, to ask for what you need for today. What do you need? Maybe it's freedom, forgiveness, grace, hope, strength, courage, wisdom. It's all yours freely given. And then I say this, everything that I have so freely received, I look for where I can give it away. And the final posture is to cross my arms and make this confession. I confess my natural human posture is to spectate. It's to critique. It's to stand at a distance. It's to say it's not my problem. But I choose, as a follower of Jesus, to open up my posture and my life in mission. And I say to the needs, I say to those crying, I hear you, I see you, you matter, you're welcome here. Pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you.